to the Truth In My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. It used to be an old joke told in Christian circles, uh, a rather tasteless joke if you ask me, but it made its point. Starts with a fellow walking along one day, he comes to a bridge, and on the bridge he sees a man who has climbed up and is getting ready to jump. Sure looks like he's getting ready to jump, he's getting ready to commit suicide. Well, of course, the fellow sees him, is, is desperate to stop him from doing that. And he runs over and starts talking to him. And he says, like, why are you doing this? And the man on the bridge says, I've got nothing to live for. So the fellow is desperately trying to convince him of something to live for. He says, don't you believe in God? And the man on the bridge says, yes, I believe in God. So the fellow says, me too. You know, we're, we're in the same boat here. I also believe in God. Tell me said, are you a Christian? Or are you a Jew? Or are you a Muslim? And the man on the bridge says, I'm a Christian. The fellow says, me too. See, we've got all this in common, the things to live for. He says, tell me, are you a Baptist, an Anglican, a Presbyterian, what? The man on the bridge says, Baptist. And the fellow says, me too. Look at that. We have so much in common. We're brothers. Come on. Uh, tell me, are you a strict and particular Baptist or independent Baptist? Vanden Bridge says, strict in particular. Mato says to fellow, Come, we're, we're all alike. We're in this together. Come on. He's still trying to keep him talking. He says, are you pre-trip, pre-mill? Are you post-trip, pre-mill? Are you mid-trip, pre-mill? Are you post-mill? Like, come on, what are you? Vanden Bridge says, oh, I'm, I'm post-trip, pre-mill. At this, the fellow kind of just stops, stares at him. Post-mill? Post-trip? Vanden Bridge says, yes. And the fellow just turns around, walks away, and says, jump and die, you heretic. That was the joke, supposedly, but it was meant to make a point. The point about how Christians are always dividing over doctrine, and they're doing it over issues that aren't even about salvation. And the idea, we're told, is that the church shouldn't be about dividing. It's about uniting the church should be about multiplication, not division. After all, the New Testament urges us to unity. And you know the passages, Ephesians chapter 4, for example, where Paul urges the people with all lowliness and gentleness, with the long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And then later on in the same chapter, verse 11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith. So unity, because it's so emphasized, so called for, we shouldn't be arguing over things that aren't crucial, doctrines that, that don't affect salvation, doctrines that are not salvific. No, I keep coming across statements like this. There are issues that aren't worth splitting over. 
that is issues that are not salvation issues. From another person, I saw this one. There are some topics that aren't important and only cause division and confusion and that aren't important. I've seen discussions in churches about if we have to lift up our hands to pray or not, or if women can't wear pants. Well, that's kind of silly, isn't it? And then further on, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So arguing about some things that only bring divisions is not wise. In fact, there's this famous dictum from Augustine that says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And you'll often see Christians appealing to this dictum from Augustine to urge us on things that matter for salvation, yes, there we have to draw the line on that. We have to debate on those, argue for those, insist on those, but everything else. Just let people be free to believe what they want. And in everything, we have to have love. And certainly, this dictum has the appearance of wisdom. After all, they say, look at Romans chapter 14, verse 1. It says, accept those whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. It's biblical, you see, this advice from Augustine. So that settles the matter, doesn't it? Romans 14.1. We should go to the wall on salvific beliefs. We should hold on to these essential beliefs like a pit bull holding on to your leg. But if a belief is not necessary for salvation, we should just agree to disagree, Right? And that's the way to avoid divisions in the church, right? Uh, so why should we talk about things like, say, Calvinism? <laughs> it's not about salvation. Both uh, whichever side you take, you're saved, aren't you? So, so why debate about it? Why talk about textual criticism? Is it really important which Greek text your New Testament is translated from? This, too, it's not about salvation. Whichever text you're using, if you're Christian, you're saved. So why debate about it at all? Or why talk about the age of the earth? Why, why have this division over young earth creationism? You know, those who say that the, the earth is a maximum, 7,686 years old, as the Bible says. And others who say, no, you're misreading the Bible. The earth is actually about 4.6 billion years old. We're told the age of the earth should not be a point that divides the church. It's not a salvific issue. You can believe the earth is however old you want and still be saved. This is a disputable matter. So why debate it? Why not just agree to disagree? Then we'd have unity in the church. We'd have no divisions. And isn't that what God wants? Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And it sounds so right. It has the appearance of wisdom. Here again in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And so that should settle it. There should be no divisions. 
and you avoid the divisions by not arguing about disputable matters, where there's, there's a lot of people on this side, a lot of people on that side, like age of the earth, like Calvinism. There should not be no divisions among you. And that's the biblical view, isn't it? And yet, we continue in 1 Corinthians 11, and we read this. I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Why does Paul in the same letter say this? There must be factions. There must be divisions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So Paul writes that he doesn't want divisions, but also says they must be there and that they are there to show who is approved. How does that work? Well, let's look back at 1 Corinthians 1.10 a little more carefully. This is what we read out before. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. It's the same judgment you make on each of these issues. You see, biblically, when it talks about divisions and how to do away with them, the divisions are done away with when you're joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Divisions cease to be when that happens. And that's the opposite of agreeing to disagree. What the Bible is saying is they're supposed to come to the same understanding of these issues by coming to the correct understanding. That's where you have no divisions. That is the purpose of pastors and teachers, okay? He, he gave apostles and prophets, and they were the foundation on which we're built, according to Ephesians, built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the key cornerstone. Where do we have the teaching of the apostles and prophets today? The Bible. But we still have evangelists, and we still have pastors and teachers. And what is the job of the pastors and teachers Equipping the saints for the work of ministry, edifying of the body of Christ, teaching, building up, for what purpose, what goal? Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. See, this is where you are before you know and understand the Bible well. It's easy. You're, you're in the child phase. You're tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Any kind of false teaching can come in, and you're vulnerable. And it's the job of the pastors and teachers to deal with these so that people come together. Christians come together to the unity of faith and knowledge. And that's where you will have the unity. Want no longer to be carried away with any false doctrines about Calvinism or Arminianism, about what's the correct Greek text, about the age of the earth, or anything, really. People say these things aren't important. They don't affect your salvation. Well, directly, maybe not, but I'm not sure indirectly they don't. But more to the point, if these things don't matter, why did God put them in the Bible? I mean, he could have given us just like a one-page statement of faith outlining the salvific beliefs. Nothing to dispute over, nothing to debate over. Just a simple one-page statement of faith and set it out that way. Why put in all that other stuff? 
Why, why get a thick Bible with all this other stuff if they don't matter? Well, maybe we should begin to suspect that they do matter. If we can just believe anything we want about these other things, I don't think they'd be in there. If you look at Job chapter 42, verses 7 to 8. Remember the book of Job. Job was hit with a series of, of terrible calamities. And through the book, he's wondering why he's looking for this answer to the problem of pain. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's what we call theodicy. And he has this group of three friends who come out to sit with him and they try to comfort him. But all of them are basically saying, well, Joe, here's the problem, fella. Here's the problem, bud. Uh, you must have done something really, really bad. You're doing some really terrible sin. You just got to admit it, dude. And then ask forgiveness and everything will be restored. That'll be good. And it's long rounds of debate going back and forth where Job is insisting that's not the case. And the friend's saying, yeah, that's got to be it. Later on, his fourth fellow comes in and he seems a little bit smarter. But this is what happens. At the end, God then shows up. And God is right. God is always right. That's rule number one. And rule number two, when God is wrong, let's go back to rule number one. And God shows himself to Job. and Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. But then God adds this to Eliphaz, the Temanites, one of the three friends. He says, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. He tells Eliphaz and his two buddies, you know, take these bulls and rams, go to Job, offer sacrifice, ask Job to pray for you. For I will accept him, I will accept Job, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right. Notice that's there twice. You have not spoken of me what is right. And what's the result of my wrath is aroused against you? Now, this was an issue, as we saw, of theodicy, the question of why do bad things happen to good people? It's not a salvific issue. Eliphaz... So far, Bildad, they, they said the wrong things. Who cares? Let's agree to disagree on that. Really? And yet God was very angry because they said what was wrong. And he was going to deal with them according to that folly, unless there was that repentance. So when we look at this, it indicates that God wants us to know the right views of everything, the right things to believe and teach what is correct in all things. These other things do matter. That's serious business, folks. If God is going to be angry because you're saying what's not right, I think I'd want to be careful to say what's right. Especially if you're going to take on the role of some kind of church leader or teacher. We see this warning in James 3.1, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Because what we teach will affect other people. We're no longer just wrong on our own. We're making other people be wrong. This, this one is, is even scarier in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. So what happens to the people you teach, that's going to be looked at on Judgment Day. You're going to have to give an account for how you did it. Now, not everything is salvific. That's true. But it's all important. You see in 1 Timothy 4, 13 to 16, till I come. Give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. 1 Timothy 4, 13 and 16. Now, we say not everything is salvific. 
But here's the point. Even those that aren't, wrong teachings on them can lead you astray into disobedience, perhaps, and eventually even into possible apostasy. That's why it's so important to pay attention to the doctrine. And that's why Paul's self-acquittal for his ministry, his ministry that he did among the Ephesians, he was there with them for three years, the longest he'd been at any one church. This was his acquittal. I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I told them everything. I taught them everything. I didn't leave out stuff that people might not like. I didn't leave out stuff that people might want to dispute over because, hey, I wanted to keep unity. The flip side seems pretty clear. If he had not done that, if he'd agreed to disagree, if he'd avoided talking about certain things because some people might not like to hear it, he would have been guilty of their blood. Should they turn apostate, for example. So Paul certainly didn't seem to hold to this view of in essentials unity and in non-essentials liberty. But then doesn't that disagree with what he wrote in Romans 14.1, except one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters? Doesn't this tell us not to, to make an issue of the disputable matters, the ones that are not salvific. But he's down what it says. What does this passage actually say? Let's look at some other translations. This one's actually the NIV. The Christian Standard Bible says, don't argue about disputed matters. New King, King James Version, not to dispute over doubtful things. New American Standard, not to have quarrels over opinions. Uh, the Living Bible, don't criticize them for having different ideas from yours about what is right and wrong. Your expanded Bible, accept into your group and Except means like, welcome, receive. Someone who is weak in faith or convictions on debatable issues. Do not argue about opinions or doubtful, debatable issues. A lot of different ways you see this translated. Now let's look at what it actually says. The verse there is the Greek. The disputable matters, it's translated disputable matters here, is dialogismon. Dialogismos. What does that actually mean? Well, there are different ways to translate it, surely. But you look at our, our B-Day process of reasoning, okay, which is not obviously not the one here. Content of reasoning or conclusion reached through use of reason. Thought, opinion, reasoning, design. And there you go, Romans 14.1. Content of reasoning or conclusion reached how? Through reading scripture and seeing what it says? No, no, no. Through use of reason. So it's your thought, your opinion, your reasoning, or your design. So the things that are not to argue about are things where you have reached a conclusion through your own reasoning, you've reached an opinion, because Scripture has not addressed it. There are matters of opinion. Should you lift up your hands when you pray? Well, maybe that's a matter of opinion, maybe not. What color carpet should we have in the church? That's definitely a matter of opinion. Should we have organ music? What style of music should we have? These are matters of opinion. Scripture doesn't tell us. And on those, definitely don't argue about them. Agree to disagree if you want. But these are not things that Scripture has spoken on. We should indeed not quarrel over matters of opinion. But we have no right not to debate and champion what Scripture has spoken on. On those, we must hold the line. And suddenly this apparent tension about what Paul is saying disappears. There's no tension at all. 
as he tells us uh, in Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. The sound word you have in scripture, the faithful word, you hold on to that. And by solid sound teaching, you exhort, stir them up, convict those who contradict, those who say wrong things about Calvinism, those who say wrong things about the Greek things, those who say wrong things about the age of the earth, or anything on which scripture has spoken. It's your job to exhort and convict if you're a church leader, particularly. 2 Corinthians 10.5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Does that sound like you're not supposed to argue just because some people disagree? No. Cast down the arguments. Bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And that's the command for church leaders. It's not just about salvific beliefs, every argument, every thought. And now this makes sense, right? Where there are divisions is because some people are teaching something that's against Scripture. And some people are teaching what is Scripture does say. They are the ones who are approved. When we see this principle again in Romans 16, 17, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. By definition, it is always those who are arguing or taking positions contrary to the doctrine, against what the Bible teaches. They are, by definition, the ones guilty of causing division, not the ones holding to what the Bible says. Uh, Take this one, for example. The age of the earth should not be a point that divides the church. The age of the earth. And this is a very good example of why we can't just agree to disagree. The Bible very clearly teaches that God created the world in six 24-hour days, six earth rotation days. It's what Genesis 1 says. There really is no mystery here. It's not abstruse. And this is why Christians understood it that way for 1,800 years. And if you read that today, you're you're still going to see that. It's not, not even difficult to see. And yet today, so many Christians are proud to deny that, to actually mock what the Bible says on this. Why have so many turned against what the Bible clearly says and what Christians accepted for 1,800 years? Well, it's pretty obvious when you look a bit at what they say. One fellow says, a young earth creationism has simply failed every empirical test that mainstream science demands. They're duped into thinking science as something different from what the Bible says. You have to choose which one you're going to go with. But, but do be aware, when they say science, what they mean is secular science. That's what they mean by mainstream science. And of course, secular science is going to deny the Bible. So you have, you have two voices you can listen to. You can listen to the word of God. You can listen to the word of secular science. Now, if you know science, you study the science of this issue, you're going to realize it doesn't disagree with the Bible at all. But secular scientists are going to tell you, oh, yeah, it does. So you're a Christian. You actually believe science more than you believe the Bible, but you don't want to throw out the Bible. How do you get around what the Bible says? It's actually very simple. You make this charge. You deny the Bible says what it says. You simply say, that's just your interpretation. And you can't argue about interpretations. I mean, you know, the Bible's in, in, in there and sure, but our interpretations are not. So we can never really know for sure what the Bible says. Now, that's not true, of course. We can know what the Bible says. God gave it to us to know him. Well, is he really so incompetent that he gave us something we just can't figure out? 
Or does it just become something we can't figure out as soon as atheists say, no, no, you can't believe it? It's not an abstruse black box of a mystery that we can only guess at and only come up with interpretations and nobody can say which one is right. And the Bible is very clear. The Lord asked me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. It's written for the purpose of us understanding and responding. 2 Corinthians 1.13, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. And I trust you will understand even to the end. That's the whole purpose of God giving us the Bible for us to understand it. And now we're being told, we really can't. You can only come up with interpretations. So if I, if I want to just listen to secular science instead of the Bible, that's okay. You can't, can't complain about that. Now, true, the Bible does warn us that some things are hard to understand. You see that in uh, 2 Peter 3.16. Peter writing about Paul's letters and all his epistles speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. But hard to understand doesn't mean you can't understand. It means you have to put in the effort to do so. It is ignorant and unstable people who end up twisting it to their own destruction. It's actually not all that difficult. I mean, the principle is very clear. Christians can understand the Bible by giving the words their normal meaning and context. That's all there is to it. It only becomes difficult when you don't like what you come up with and you want to find some excuse to get around it. That's when you go for this bogus uh, interpretation gambit. That's what we see all the time. This fellow on this issue, it's one of the most difficult problems confronting modern Christians is the issue of interpreting Genesis 1 to 11. So notice that understanding or accepting becomes interpreting in light of what we know from scientific evidence concerning the Earth's history. So is it really the Bible's hard to understand here? Or is it that they think wrongly, but they think science contradicts it? We've got to change our interpretation. We've got to change our interpretation. And it's okay because it's a wide variety of different interpretations. I have many respected Christian brothers and sisters who take the view, based on their understanding of Scripture, that the world was created about 6,000 years ago. And they claim scientific evidence to support their assertions. Other Christians, like myself would have considered carefully the relevant biblical texts and scientific evidence claim that the world was created billions of years ago. This young earth creation is a misunderstanding of the same scriptures and at odds with overwhelming scientific data. Now, if you look carefully what he's saying, is there some people who believe that the earth is created about 6,000 years ago, I would say a little more than that, but about 6,000 years ago, why? Based on their understanding of scripture. Those who deny it based on scientific evidence. The scientific evidence and makes you claim that scripture is misunderstood when it's taken by its plain meaning. Really, it's the overwhelming scientific data that becomes their master, not scripture. Now, these people claim scientific evidence. Well, they're correct about that. But this just seems to have such the appearance of wisdom. But you see what's happening. Yeah? Scripture is being downplayed here, folks. So uh, we ask about interpreting what's the authority here. Is it scripture or is it atheist science. Real science doesn't contradict the Bible, but those who mistakenly think it does toss out what the Bible says, and they call it reinterpreting it to get rid of a teaching they find problematic. But of course, once you do that, there's no stopping. I mean, why not reinterpret any part that you don't like? Why not reinterpret what the Bible says about gender roles? Once you replace coming to the understanding of the Bible with interpreting the Bible, 
Professing Christians can and will do that for anything they don't like or anything about which the world puts pressure on them. We no longer have a fixed source of authority when we do that. We become like the children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And so this is why, folks, this advice that seems to be wise is in fact toxic. We cannot agree to disagree. It would be the death knell of the church. We have to disagree to disagree when someone in the church is teaching falsehood. We have to teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. And that is what we will continue to do here, folks. If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.